Welcome to the show. It's Friday, so that means I'm out, and it's also hashtag FOF, or F-O-F, Friends on Fridays. This Friday, we will broadcast John Zipper's week-to-week show. The program today is brought to you by Pacific Fertility Center. When life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. And now here's Week to Week with John Zipperer. I'm John Zipperer, the host of the Commonwealth Club's Week to Week Politics Program. You can find out more about Week to Week and all of the Commonwealth Club's many programs, including videos and audio, at CommonwealthClub.org. Now let's join this week's program. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, everyone. Thank you for being here. Thank you for coming to participate in this dialogue, this engagement, this coming together, this understanding, our misunderstanding. But whatever the case might be, we are here to hear, to listen, to talk, to open up, to create new possibilities. And you are part of that, and I'm a part of that. You know what we're doing? We're making history, and we're taking history, and we're saying that we are trying to make sure that in the Bay Area and in America and in the world, we will respond in ways that will lift us up and take us to new heights. There's no doubt about it. We've got real possibilities. And I want to personally, I'm Cecil Williams. If you don't know me by now, you will get to know me by the end of this program. But I want you to know that we are very thrilled that you're here and that we, you've come many places, from many places, to participate in this give and take. And that's what we want it to be, a give and take. But we are not here to point at people and to say you are worse than other folks. We're here to say we're all caught and gripped by a situation where we must open up new possibilities. We will come and create new possibilities. We'd like to thank the Commonwealth Club. And we'd like to thank those of you from other places and other disciplines. And we want you to know that you're at the right place at the right time doing the right stuff. So thank you very much. Welcome, 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 and keep welcoming. Thank you very much. Good evening, everyone. My name is Azaria Cole Shepard. I am 18. I am from Oakland, California, and I'm a freshman at San Jose State University. I am here on behalf of the Oakland Youth Poet Laureate Program and Youth Speaks as the 2016 Oakland Youth Poet Laureate. For the black men my love cannot protect, you are radiant. Your eloquence is the gun they swear you have when they shoot you. The speed of your tongue, a justification to stand their ground. Your existence is the antithesis of their contentment. For this world is not prepared for your potential to succeed. You are powerful. I wrote Bart today. As I passed Fruitvale Station, my heart dropped. I thought about Oscar and the bonding his baby girl will never experience at the hands of the bondage that took him forever. I thought about the gun and taser clothing, synonymous for the oops that follows genocide, dear black man. Your stark white smile shines like the stars and your lips curve like the crescent moon. But every time I see the night sky that is your face, the fear grows inside. You see they shot Mike and Trayvon 
and Alan, and Mario, and Tamir, and Eric, and Alton, and Alva, and Paul, and Phil. They even choked Eric, and I don't want to know what they will do to you. As a bullet penetrates this tissue, I will buy stock and tissue because these tears won't stop. And I know you're tomorrow and promise. So today, today I tell you I love you. I feel that you don't hear it enough. Baby mamas and MTV and even BET saying you are inadequate, but you, you are enough. So as you pour yourself out like libations for those you have loved and lost, black men, remember you need to stand tall. They said that there was no warmth like the warmth of a mother's arms, her love, a burning passion for your survival. But what does that warmth do for the cold body she caresses? She no longer wears white dresses, then bloodstains don't come out. The bleach didn't burn her skin just like the system didn't burn us, and they dare ask, are you a respectable Negro? Are you pleasant enough to only leave a few bumps and bruises when they beat you, or are you a beast? Will you break their bones like you break racial barriers and turn them against one another like stiff pages in books you have read? You are intelligent, but how exactly do you use the knowledge in your head to pass the bar whose weight we are crushing under as we wait for social change? Black men, take hold of your sisters, for this patriarchal society means it's no good. When you make it to your 21st birthday, please celebrate to no end for this. This is a major life event no other race will understand. Remind your sisters that they should stand tall. For we are not stepping stones towards liberation. We be the backbone that backs you up when nobody else got you, dear black man. I can continue to carve the words I love you into your skin with my eyes, but I traded my best souls for bullets I would take for you. My cries for chrome knuckles race to the sky and death for deconstruction of a system that don't want us here. So when you make it to the end of this year, you better remember this letter. For we can no longer count the number of fatalities, and I, I cannot claim your body in the morgue. My cold body may be the one laying right next to yours. They killed Tanisha, and Sandra, and Rakia, and Miriam, and Shelly, and Diamond, and Darnisha. Dang it, the list goes on, and I may be next, black man, my love. What will it take to make them see your worth? I am mourning, and in the morning, I am scared you will not be here. Do you hear me, or have you silenced me like the rest of the community do? I mean... It's fine if you have. The only question that remains is, if I don't speak up for us, where does that leave you? Thank you. Good evening. Hello, everybody. I'd like to welcome all of you to Glide Sanctuary, where we are the this minute. My name is Cruz Reynoso, and I just want to welcome you on behalf of the Commonwealth Club and the Glide Center for Social Justice. Uh, we're grateful that you are here for this important and timely discussion about the state of policing in San Francisco and throughout the country. Our focus this evening is on the fair administration of justice, the premier civil rights issue of our time. The problem of racial bias in the law enforcement entered into our collective consciousness once again with the shooting, you'll recall, of Michael Brown in Ferguson, Missouri. Next Tuesday will mark the two-year anniversary of Michael Brown's death. Rather than bringing the communities together to chart a path forward to restore faith and trust in law enforcement these last two years, have, riddled, have been riddled with disturbing and highly publicized reports of questionable incidents of police use of force against people of color, many caught on videos, as we all know. More recently, 
The equally disturbing disturbance has been the recent rise of violence against police themselves. Here in San Francisco, arguably the most progressive city in America, we are not immune from this problem, from those tragedies, or from bias. In March 2015, the first of two racist and homophobic text messaging scandals rocked the, the, the San Francisco Police Department and shook the community's faith in its guardians. Following this revelation, District Attorney George Moscone convened, convened the Blue Ribbon Panel in Transparency, Accountability, and Fairness in Law Enforcement uh, to inquire into how racial and homophobic biases might affect our officers' interaction with the people of color and members of the LGBT community. Prosecutors aren't just, aren't just tasked with putting people in jail. They have a constitutional mandate, responsibility to seek after justice. And let me repeat, let me repeat that. Prosecutors have a responsibility for justice. And that's why the district attorney set up this, this commission and when he set it up, he told all of us that he wasn't giving us any instructions except the Constitution of the United States of America. Accordingly, at the heart of the Blue Ribbon Panel's analysis was the question, is there institutionalized and systemic bias within the San Francisco Police Department? I want to be clear from the very beginning of this discussion. The vast majority of police officers are excellent human beings the problem we see across the country and often, is often that police culture, practices, and accountability mechanisms don't always require excellence. And the implications for those who are policed can be severe. The Blue Ribbon Panel on which I serve, uh, and, I, and one of my colleagues is here also, was supported by the diligent work of seven law firms and five law schools. And I want to emphasize that all of the work that has been done has been done on a pro bono basis, even though hundreds and hundreds of hours have been spent by those law firms, uh, by the jurors, and, and so on. We examined whether, whether biased conduct was limited to the 14 officers involved in the Texgate scandal, or whether the San Francisco Police Department's culture and policies contributed to the problem. Of Over the course of a year, we interviewed more than 100 witnesses and received thousands of public documents. And last month, we issued an extensive report detailing all 72 of the findings along with 81 recommendations. From our research, we found that in 2015, San Francisco police searched black and Hispanic people without, without their consent at higher rates than any other racial group. Of all the people searched without consent though, black and Hispanics were the least likely to be found with contraband on them. Even more troubling, 36 of 51, let me repeat, 36 of 51 suspects shot by police in San Francisco between 2010 and 2015, over 70% were black or Hispanic. In 18 officer-involved shootings during the same period, officers didn't even record the race of the deceased and the data they did collect was recorded on paper only. Poor data management by the San Francisco Police Department has been a critical finding of the Blue Ribbon study. 
not only does it reflect a failure of, to modernize, but it also comes at the, at, at the cost of transparency. And transparency by any official is the most important thing that we as citizens require. In line with the theme of this discussion, policing and the police, and how we can reform America's law enforcement, one of our main recommendations is to create an Office of Inspector General to audit the San Francisco Police Department. In the Office of Citizens' Complaints, we found that there were just many gaps, if you will, between the citizens of this city and, and the work that was being done by, tho by those who have a responsibility to make sure that everything goes well with the police department. We also recommended updating the San Francisco Police Department policy to mandate minimal use of force. Together, all 81 of our recommendations aimed to make the San Francisco Police Department a more transparent, fair, and trusted institution. Although we developed our recommendations with a critical eye, we recognize that the San Francisco Police Department is far from alone in grappling with institutionalized bias. Cities across the country face the same problem. The difference is that San Francisco now has a roadmap to make, a, to make us go forward. The troubling intersection of law enforcement and racial disparity, violence and injustice is not a new phenomenon. It is indelibly linked to our origin as a nation. What we now know about implicit racial bias reveals the depth of this legacy. Only by systema systematically and comprehensively reforming our most powerful institutions will we be able to fix the problem. And I just want to say that I think it's the Board of Supervisors that are going to have that responsibility. And San Francisco has the opportunity to lead the nation in this effort. Now, please welcome CNN Justice Reporter Scott Glover, who will introduce our panelists for us. Thank you very much. The Commonwealth Club has teamed with Glide Center for Social Justice to produce this program about reforming American law enforcement, policing the police. I'm Scott Glover. I'm an investigative journalist and justice reporter for CNN and your moderator for this evening's program. We're here tonight in San Francisco, but we could be, maybe should be, be having this conversation in Minnesota, Baton Rouge, Ferguson, Baltimore, New York City, various places around the country. America is struggling with an increasing number of incidents where images are captured depicting controversial uses of force by police on predominantly black and brown members of the community. The culture within law enforcement departments from coast to coast is under fire. In some recent cases, quite literally. How can we create a more perfect union between police and the citizens they protect and encourage transparency, accountability, and fairness in law enforcement. The Commonwealth Club repeatedly asked acting SFPD Chief Tony Chaplin to speak on this panel tonight, but his office said that the department is unable to participate in this panel due to scheduling concerns. <laughs> we'll be back with more here on Friends on Fridays with John Zipperer of Commonwealth Club right after this. You're listening to the Progressive Voices channel on TuneIn. Please help us grow. Tell your friends to tune in to Progressive Voices. Find out more at ProgressiveVoices.com. Babe, I think we're ready. We're really doing this. Yeah, I'm ready for our family. 
So where do we start? <laughs> Starting a family is a team effort, and when life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. As a unified team of the best fertility specialists, guided by the highest ethical standards, Pacific Fertility Center provides patients with compassionate fertility care. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. Weatherford BMW is where I spend a lot of my time. I love what I do and I love the people I work with. But work's not the only thing I love. I love the everyday simple things in life, like mornings at my favorite coffee shop, taking walks with my dogs around Point Isabel, and spoiling my partner for a scenic but thrilling ride. That's the beauty of living the Bay Area dream. We're just being ourselves, living our authentic life. Live your authentic life, a special message by Weatherford BMW. When asked, 90% of seniors say they want to remain in their own homes as they age. Hello, I'm Charles Symes, owner of Allegra Home Care. Our caregivers have been serving seniors and the aging community for over 20 years. Allegra Home Care is the only Bay Area home care agency that is LGTB certified. Helping LGTB seniors stay at home is our passion. Please visit us at www.alegrecare.com. Allegra Home Care serving your community. I understand that there may be some police officers who are here in the audience to, this evening, and, and I would encourage them to make their views known or to ask questions um, and, and provide cards to the people who are circulating through the office because their view is just as important as anyone else. And though I've written the things that I've written over the years, I am by no means anti-police. I think it's a crucial job in society. Uh, we're going to start this conversation about what happened here in San Francisco and the findings of the Blue Ribbon Panel on Transparency, Accountability, and Fairness in Law Enforcement that investigated what happened, and then move it across the country to talk about how we can implement some of those recommended changes. I'm grateful to be joined by George Gascon, SF District Attorney, who convened the Blue Ribbon Panel to investigate the San Francisco Police Department. He was the former chief of the San Francisco Police Department and served as a Los Angeles Police Department high-ranking official for many years and spent uh, most of his career there. Ladoris Cordell is a retired judge of the Superior Court of California and a member of the Blue Ribbon Panel that investigated the SFPD. Judge Cordell was also the former independent police auditor for the city of San Jose. W. Kamau Bell is a host of the new CNN Emmy-nominated show, United Shades of America. He's also a host of a public radio show and an acclaimed political comedian. Van Jones, last but not least, is an author, attorney, and CNN political commentator. He has co-founded several nonprofit social justice organizations, including Cut 50 and Dream Corps. I will uh, direct uh, my first question to District Attorney Gascon. The Blue Ribbon Panel report talks about a good old boy culture, an outdated disciplinary system that lacks transparency, and a system for backgrounding officers that is ripe with abuse and favoritism. To what extent did you recognize those problems during your tenure, and how did you attempt to address them? That's the first part of the question. And the second part is, as you sit here now, with the benefit of hindsight, how, if at all, would you do things differently? Uh, dealing with the problems of uh, excessive force and, and the targeting of primarily uh, minority men, especially African Americans, which by the way, 
it's not new, it's only now being provided because everyone has a camera. And I can't help but reflect on the importance of creating police practices and a culture within police that is respectful, that is unbiased, that treats people with respect. And to the point that you ask, Scott, you know, what, you know, what should I have done differently? And looking back with the benefit of hindsight, uh, what would I do differently moving forward? I have to tell you, first of all, that I knew and have always known that there are good police officers, but there are some that, you know, unfortunately do not follow the law. And I have pride always myself in being a strong disciplinarian and in, in holding people accountable. Yet, when I saw the text messages that came out in March of 2015 from 14 police officers in San Francisco, I was completely, completely taken by surprise. I would never have imagined that we still harbor those feelings in 2015 or 2012 when those messages were originally put out. And not only was I revolted by it, but it became very clear to me that aside from the racism and the problems that those text messages indicated, there was a real problem for me as a district attorney to do my work and be able to do it um, well, because we depend on police officers from providing testimony in order to do our work, and in order to do so, I needed to make sure that we got to the bottom of this. And I refused to believe at that point that this was simply 14 officers, because the way that they conducted their business was too casual, it was too normalized. And when we tried to get help in order to conduct that investigation, with, by the way, no one in the county was really looking to do beyond investigating those 14 officers. Um, I've, run in, I've run into one wall after the other, and that was the beginning of putting this panel together that has done incredible work. And the second part of your question, what would I do differently today? Well, I tell you what I'm doing differently. I'm looking at the recommendations of the Blue Ribbon Panel, and I'm being ensuring that everything that we can do in my office to ensure that this type of behavior will not taint the work that we do in the future. Okay, thank you. And, and let's move on to one of those recommendations and a question for Judge Cordell. And uh, one of the key recommendations is for the San Francisco Police Department to have an inspector general. Um, that sounds like a really good idea. Um, over the years, I've, I've spoken with many inspectors generals, uh, general who have come into their jobs feeling energized and excited about making a difference you know, with the police department. Um, and then after being there for a while, have talked about a lack of funding, not enough staffing, um, you know, insufficient access to the things they need to do their job. I'm wondering what your experience was like in San Jose and how you think need, things need to work here in San Francisco for this job to make a difference. With regard to our recommendation about having an inspector general's office, all of it goes to transparency in policing. So basically the name of this program is you know, policing the police. Um, so where we are in this country is that we now understand that uh, it is not acceptable for the police to police themselves. And by that we mean if there are complaints that are made about police conduct. Uh, here, historically, the police have looked into those complaints and they've investigated themselves and then they've presented the findings without any kind of independent oversight. 
So what the Inspector General's office does is provide that independent civilian, and civilian means people like you and me who are not officers, having some oversight over how the police departments operate. There are 18,000 police departments in the United States, and most of them do not have independent civilian oversight. And those that do, I give them all the kudos in the world. There are different forms, however, of independent civilian oversight. One form is having an office of the inspector general. So oversight means a couple of things. It means oversight over how complaints that are made by you against police and also by police officers who generate complaints against their own within the department, having oversight over how those complaints are investigated and how the findings are made to make sure that those findings are objective. So in San Jose, where I was the independent police auditor, we have a, didn't have an inspector general's office. We had a staff of six people, four of whom, when I started, were lawyers. And our purpose was really to have oversight over this complaint process. There's also other kinds of oversight. You can have it in the form of civilian review boards. And when you think about that, people get very excited. Yeah, civilians, we're going to look at everything. And I, I stress to you to look very carefully at those kinds of uh, boards, because oftentimes they are not effective. One, because a lot of times they're volunteers, and they have to get together and have a quorum to meet. They have to do it on their own time oftentimes, and then they have to uh, have the time to conduct hearings or whatever it is they're designated to do. Um, the, the proposal, the recommendation that we've made here for San Francisco is to have independent oversight over everything over the operations of the police department. So for example, uh, looking at the system of discipline. Is it being done in a thoughtful, objective fashion? Um, our officers early, we call it an early warning system. Our officers who are generating complaints, are they flagged and talked to and counseled early on in the process? So having civilians kind of have oversight. We're not telling the police what to do but we're certainly make holding police departments accountable when there are independent individuals who are having oversight over the operations. Oftentimes, um, controversial police shootings you know, come down to someone being given that extra split second when an officer is deciding whether he's going to pull the trigger or she's going to pull the trigger. I'm going to direct this uh, question to Van Jones. Um, in my years covering the LAPD and, and uh, interviewing officers who had been in shooting after shooting, some of them five, seven, ten shootings, a lot of shootings, um, and people, you know, just officers in the department, they, they talked about, um, you know, it not being an issue of somebody being black or brown is the reason that they're being shot. And these are some black and brown officers who I'm talking to, but they're talking about the area in which they're policing and the level of anxiety and danger that they feel in one area versus another area in the city and acknowledging that perhaps they are too quick to pull the trigger sometimes but that there's a reason behind it. My first question is, do you buy that? And if you do, what are some you know, out-of-the-box approaches for addressing that problem. I ask that of you because I know that you wear a lot of different hats and, um, you know, are, are a creative thinker in that way. 
You asked if I buy that? No. (laughs) (laughs) So so the the area where an officer works, in in your view, is not going to... You know, it's interesting. Beauty is in the eye of the beholder, and so is threat. Um, I spent my 20s, my early 20s, in a drug-infested den of crime and iniquity called Yale Law School. (laughs) Um, I've never seen so much felonious activity. Nobody went to jail. In fact, the police would drive past Yale to go three or four blocks down to the housing projects where you had poorer kids doing fewer drugs. And they put all those kids in jail. If you create a black market, you enable cartels, you enable violent people. Um, But they create black markets in some neighborhoods and they don't create it in others. If they create the same conditions in the suburbs where kids are doing every drug imaginable, they'd have some shootouts there too. They don't go there. So part of the situation is um, we have to have a more holistic approach. If If you get all the way down to that last second where you're already freaked out and dealing with people you've never met and don't talk to and scared of and uh, every time you think about them you, you get frightened in that last split second or you got to make a bad decision you probably will but how did we get in that situation in the first place um, and by the way being here for me is very difficult We'll be back with more here on Friends on Fridays with John Zipper of Commonwealth Club right after this I'm Heclina. I've been doing drag here in San Francisco for almost 20 years. And uh, over the past couple months, I just opened up my club, Oasis. It's been going really well. People really seem to appreciate the space. It's something people say San Francisco really needs right now because the city has been changing a lot. I always had this attitude of, of opening a space that was kind of like for everybody. And that's just kind of the attitude and the, the uh, the ethics of Oasis is it's kind of a space for everybody. How does it feel to be a business owner? I don't know, you know, it's funny because I still need, I still have to kind of pinch myself to believe it's actually true, you know what I mean? Like I walk in there and and I go up to the bar and I go, oh, can I please have a glass of water? You know, it's kind of like, I forget that it's my place. Running gay clubs, it's changed a lot. Um, I think that gay people now, they're everywhere. They don't feel like they have to maybe be in a gay bar all the time, so you have to be much more creative about how you are enticing people to come out to your club. I I guess I'm successful because I'll just say it, I work really hard at what I do. I also like to provide a really quality experience for people. So yes, you know, people will pay to see my shows and pay to come to my club, but I always like like to give them something that's worth it. The experience that they'll, they'll leave my shows going, okay, that was worth it, you know what I mean? That's just always been my attitude. Um, just to entertain people, and so it seems like that works, you know. I would say to young kids, you know, just kind of form your own identity. 
and, uh, and you know, don't let others dictate how you should behave or think. Uh, you can always go to uh, sfoasis.com to find out about all the entertainment and nightlife that we have going on at Oasis. If you want to see drag, we've got that for you. If you want to see some queer hip-hop parties or queer dance parties, we have that for you. Spotlight on success and achievement. Brought to you by Wells Fargo. Together, we'll go far. April 6, 1996, 20 years ago. I was a young kid in this town. I used to sneak in to your services, uh, Reverend uh, Cecil. I would sneak in because I didn't have any money to put in the plate. And I would sit right up there in the corner and I'd cry and try to feel better because the police in San Francisco were brutal then. Uh, April 6, 1996, Mark Garcia beaten, stomped, and pepper sprayed to death. It, I'm getting there. <laughs> beaten, stomped, and pepper sprayed to death right there in the Mission District. Lead arresting officer, then Captain Sir. People marched then. People talked about accountability then. People talked about the need for more oversight then. And the young people of color uh, in this city at that time who had more wisdom and more insight about what was going on with the police then were totally ignored. And that brutal police officer went from being a captain to being a chief. I wasn't surprised at all when a thug brute of a police officer and a murderer of a police officer who got away with it 20 years ago wound up being the chief of police that you had a thousand problems. But the young people could have told you that then. Um, May 13th, 1998, Sheila DeToy, you talk about people shooting. Sheila DeToy, 17-year-old girl. I'm over here um, 15 minutes from here, 10 minutes from here, sitting in a car with her boyfriend. Her boyfriend had an arrest warrant for a nonviolent drug offense. Gregory, Officer Gregory Breslin, nicknamed TikTok, nicknamed TikTok, known through the whole department as TikTok, runs up on the car in plain clothes, pulls his gun out. The kids panic, try to ski away. He fires one shot in front of the car, bullet goes over. He jumps to the side, fires one shot through the side. Uh, the kid driving the car hugs the steering wheel. The bullet goes by, hits Sheila DeToy, 17-year-old kid in the head, blows her brains out all over the car. White girl in a car with a black kid. This kid never had an overdue library book, dead. Then he turns and fires at the car that's going behind and shoots another kid in the back. Everybody knows who the cops are that shoot too much. Everybody knows who the cops are who are trigger happy. They have nicknames like Mad Dog and TikTok and all these things. And everybody will then give them excuses for then putting themselves in harm's way and shooting their way out, as long as they do it in poor communities. My point is simply this. Nobody here hates police. If you think you hate the police, as soon as something happens, you call them anyway, so you don't really hate them. <laughs> it's kind of like your ex-boyfriend. You don't really hate them. Um, but you got an orange creature from some other planet running for president talking about law and order. <laughs> now, my point is, 
Nobody wants law and order more than people who live in communities that don't have it. Nobody wants law and order more than people who live in communities where there are funerals for young people every other weekend. Nobody wants law and order more than we do. But I have, I'm a radical. I have a very radical idea. The police should obey the law, too. The police should obey the law, too. That's law and order. That's law and order. So I'm going to let Kamal get in here, but I do want to say No, that. you keep going, brother. You got it. <laughs> But I just want to say this. What the judge was saying is common sense. And it was common sense in the streets of San Francisco and in Oakland and Richmond 20 years ago when I was a young kid running around here protesting. Uh, you don't have to hate the police to want police reform. Nobody hates butchers. But you still want meat inspectors. <laughs> you still want meat inspectors. You still want to make sure it's all right. Nobody hates architects and construction workers, but you still want building inspectors to make sure it's all right. Any system, any human system that doesn't have adequate checks and balances and oversight will tend toward corruption and abuse, period, point blank. That's just human nature. Nobody mad at nobody. So the person to my immediate left here. I, I cede the rest of my time to Van, actually. <laughs> Not that easy. Uh, my person to the, the person to my immediate left here is uh, sort of a self-described uh, pioneer in this world uh, of police uh, and uh, community relations. And I'll, I'll quote him on the topic. Uh, this is a, a quote from, uh, <laughs> from uh, an episode uh, of uh, his program, United Shades of America, in which he says, I'm going where no other civilian black man has ever gone before to the front seat of a police car. I had to fight to get that line in, actually. Yeah. So, uh, so, yeah. so tell us about that. Give us a little context and um, you know, share your observations about your, uh, your time in Camden. Uh, I mean, yeah, I can do that. First of all, I want to, uh, uh, Azaria, am I saying that correctly? Thank you. Thank you. You know, this is a real, you know, and I know that people out there know this. I want to give it up for all my activists and organizers out there. You should be sitting in this seat. Thank you for showing up. I appreciate you doing the real work. Uh, and I will get to that in a second. Uh, but the question I keep, I thought this when I saw who was on the bill. I thought this, when I, this morning when I woke up and thought about this. Where are the police? Why aren't they, why is, well, this is, shouldn't be a comedian seat. I think I got booked last week because they finally canceled last week. Where are the police? I, I think that we, the problem that I see is that if we can't get the police in the seat, we're like people at Thanksgiving talking about how grandma's a problem and grandma ain't there. <laughs> where are the police? I'm asking you, where, I mean, I feel like that we're not, we're sort of, it's a theoretical conversation at this point. It's not actually a, real conversation about what we can do next, you know? And I know you worked hard, sister. Thank you for your work. Thank you. I know you did. I know you did. And I know you tried to get him here. I want to be clear about that. But where are the police? Uh, I just think that, that, that we, have, we, have created a, uh, we have created a thing here where the police feel like they're separate from the rest of us. 
and we've allowed the police to do that. We talk about, I've talked about, we talk about the, the community, the police talk about the police community like it's separate from other communities. And we talk about, the, we talk about, uh, police talk about our community versus the black community, and it's like, that's not, that shouldn't be separate things. And so for me, it seems really indicative of, of where we are in this point in society and where we've always been, is that the police don't show up here because they don't feel accountable to the rest of us. But the police were there in Camden, and so were you. So tell I, well, yeah, yeah, I'll tell you about that. About what happened. And I'll tell you about that, which is interesting. I know more cops from four days in Camden than I know from my 20 years of living in the Bay Area. And your impressions? I'll get there. Cops in Camden are doing a thing called community policing. How's it working? The results are mixed. People are talking about it. But people, the cops in Camden get out of their cars. They walk the beat. They meet people so that hopefully when the, uh, in the pulpit, when the poo hits the fan, the, peep, the cop knows who that person is, knows who's the poo thrower, all right? And, uh, and that's what the whole point is in Camden is that cops get out of their cars and meet people. And I really said, I live in Berkeley. Berkeley is what? 20, I don't know how many people it is, but it ain't that many. It's 15, 16 people. And I don't know the police, and I don't understand why we have to, why, this is the problem, is that until the police feel separate, so they stay in their cars, they don't talk to you unless there's a problem. And what it does is that, yes, as Van said, when you call, the, when you are in trouble, you call the cops, but I think a lot of people in this room call them like this. <gasps> the same way you would call a mountain lion to the senior house if there was problems. <laughs> and it, so, I, yes, in Camden, I did talk to cops, they were trying to do a thing, and I think that unless police departments, the police in Canada have taken it upon themselves to, ch to, to admit that they've made mistakes and change things. The first thing police departments have to do is that they have made mistakes. And it seems like because they're not here, they're not admitting they've made mistakes. Uh, let me, let me just if say I can break in for just a moment, I have some actual breaking news. Uh, the police are in fact here. Um, I am going to uh, introduce some folks. Please forgive me if I mispronounce your name or your title. It's coming from a card here, but I understand that Deputy Police Chief Makali Ali, Captain Jason Chernis, Commissioner Victor Huang are here in the audience and okay with being introduced. Please welcome them. Please introduce yourself and uh, tell folks what's on your mind. Well, first of all, obviously I didn't prepare for this, but uh, <laughs> uh, uh, my name is Mikhail Ali. I'm uh, one of several police officers who are here. I'm a uh, deputy chief of police. I've been a part of the San Francisco Police Department now going into my 25th year. I'm, uh, I'm here on my own time, as is every other officer who's here, uh, simply because we wanted to hear what the community has to say. And uh, right, wrong, uh, uh, on point, off point, uh, we have a responsibility uh, to listen and to uh, address those concerns. And so that is precisely why I'm here, and the others are here as well. Do you want to address any of the concerns that Van was raising regarding the writing of reports? And well, I, I just remember Van on Market Street in about 10th or 11th uh, many, many years ago. So... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> While I, uh, I have an officer here on the stage, um, let, me, let me pose this question to the entire panel, any or all of you. Um, is it possible that we're simply seeing more of a problem that's happening less frequently? Um, as I mentioned, I worked on a big project at the LA Times. We looked at 1,437 officer-involved shootings from 1985 through 2004. Um, 
I read every single report, as did my reporting partner, Matt Late. And we put them into three ring binders. Um, in some years, they were well into the triple digits. Um, in some years, you needed two binders. There were a whole lot of police shootings in the late 80s and early 90s. There were a whole lot of dead black men, a whole lot of them unarmed. I don't recall any of them being caught on cell phone footage. Um, I don't know when cell phones really, you know, became so prevalent, but there's Rodney King, but, you know, I just, it wasn't really an issue in all of these reports that we're looking at. So I pose this question, not to diminish any of what's happening or any of the individual cases that are so sad and tragic, but is it possible that we're just seeing it more? We'll be back with more here on Friends on Fridays with John Zipperer of Commonwealth Club right after this. You're listening to the Progressive Voices channel on TuneIn. Please help us grow. Tell your friends to tune in to Progressive Voices. Find out more at ProgressiveVoices.com. Babe, I think we're ready. We're really doing this. Yeah, I'm ready for our family. So where do we start? <laughs> Starting a family is a team effort, and when life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side as a unified team of the best fertility specialists guided by the highest ethical standards Pacific Fertility Center provides patients with compassionate fertility care. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. Weatherford BMW is where I spend a lot of my time. I love what I do and I love the people I work with, but work's not the only thing I love. I love the everyday simple things in life, like mornings at my favorite coffee shop, taking walks with my dogs around Point Isabel, and spoiling my partner for a scenic but thrilling ride. That's the beauty of living the Bay Area dream. We're just being ourselves, living our authentic life. Live your authentic life, a special message by Weatherford BMW. When asked, 90% of seniors say they want to remain in their own homes as they age. Hello, I'm Charles Symes, owner of Allegra Home Care. Our caregivers have been serving seniors and the aging community for over 20 years. Allegra Home Care is the only Bay Area home care agency that is LGTB certified. Helping LGTB seniors stay at home is our passion. Please visit us at www.alegrecare.com. Allegra Home Care serving your community. I think we are. I, I believe that uh, when we start unfolding and unpacking what is going on, I think that we are seeing more. And I think that even for many of us that have spent an entire life in law enforcement, certainly adult life, uh, I think it's an eye-opening for many of us. I, I, I can tell you that I don't believe that all of a sudden we have a new generation of police officers who somehow have become more violent or less respectful of the law. Uh, I have to regret, regretfully say that a lot of the complaints that before I would look at them and we investigate them, and quite frankly, because it was the word of one person against another, uh, we basically determined that we had no, no resolution to the case. Um, I think that now we're seeing a, a very different uh, face to policing. And I say this, and I want to underline again, that I still continue to believe that the majority of the men and women in uniform work very hard under very difficult conditions, and they're doing the right things day in and day out. But what we're seeing now is a, 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 you know, 
the, the opening of a window into policing and American policing that we didn't see before. And I think that is something that have been going there all the time. And I know that if you talk to anyone in the African-American community, we tell you, you know, we have been telling you this for the last hundred years or whatever. Um, and I get that. And that's why I'm here today and what we're doing, the kind of work that we're doing. But I don't think it's any different today. Uh, I, have a, I have a question here for the deputy chief. Um, thank, thanks very much again for joining us on the stage. We do appreciate it. Um, it's become a way too com common scenario. Uh, there's cell phone footage of a controversial police shooting. Uh, it looks bad, you know, to the layman. Uh, the police response is the video doesn't tell the whole story. Often, the police response is the video doesn't tell the whole story. We have to, you know, wait for our investigation before we can really comment. And, you know, that's frustrating, I think, for everybody involved, both the police side and, and the people who are upset about the shooting. Uh, and I think it's viewed with skepticism by some. Um, that said, often these instances become symbols of police abuse with no police comment, no explanation. Is that fair? What are your thoughts on this? You know, what do you have to say about that topic? You know, I, I completely understand the uh, community's frustration with that process, but it is a process. And the unfortunate thing is it's become a very lengthy process, and there is their opportunity to make some changes. As a police executive, if I have uh, a part of an investigation of officers involved under my, under my watch where there's not maybe clear criminal culpability in their part, then I have to be silent to some degree and allow that, that investigation to play its course and not speak on evidence or not speak on evidence that ultimately may taint the, the outcome of that investigation. Uh, the challenge is we need to make those investigations move quicker. They need to be objective. I completely agree that across this country, uh, we need not necessarily investigate our own set of circumstances when an officer is involved in a shooting, uh, but perhaps you know, a state or a federal agency or another law enforcement partner actually come in and be the objective eyes uh, doing the investigation, uh, particularly when you're dealing with uh, officer misconduct. You know, can I just say that you know, we're hearing some comments from people who are not satisfied, they're not happy, and, and I will tell you, it all comes about because there's no trust in, in the process, and there's no trust in the process because it's all closed up. We don't know how it works. If, if, you, if you want me, if you want us to believe in you, then we have to believe you. And if I can't believe you unless I know what is happening, how things are going. So let me give an example. Judges, doctors, psychologists, if lawyers, if any of us have complaints and they are sustained, and that means we are disciplined, any member of the public can find out. You can go online, go to the state bar, and you can find out if your lawyer has ever been disciplined, what the discipline was, and what the facts were about the case that led to it. But you can't do that with police. And again, we're back to Police Officers' Bill of Rights and the laws Right? And why a particular group is so sealed off, and I maintain that it works to the disadvantage of police because everything is so secret, we can't trust completely. That has to change.
First off, uh, I, I'd like to thank the audience for all of the questions that you've been submitting. Many of them have been asked. Many are overlapping. Uh, we're, we're getting close to an end here. I'm going to ask one specific question for our deputy chief, which is how many hours of de-escalation training do officers in SF get as a percentage of all training and compared to other cities? I, I obviously don't have that information, but what I do have is this. Uh, every San Francisco police officer uh, in the San Francisco Police Academy, and I know this because I made it happen, uh, receive uh, almost 120 hours of crisis intervention training, de-escalation training uh, while, they're the, while they're in the academy. Uh, that started in um, June of last year. Uh, I'd say at this point, well over 50% of our patrol force has had an upwards of 80 to 120 hours of training relative to dealing with people in crisis, to uh, uh, lear learning ways of de-escalating uh, situations that obviously um, can get out of hand. And uh, in most instances, we get it right. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, ma'am. I, I don't think you heard me. I said that each recruit receives about 120 hours while in the academy. And every officer has received that as well. We started with 40 hours of what we call uh, pre-crisis intervention training. We started that training about five years ago. Um, four years ago, actually three years ago, we transitioned working with the mental health community in San Francisco, where well over 50% of our force is, is now trained in crisis intervention training, which translates very simply into anyone who is not necessarily in their right frame of mind. And that could be any one of us on any given day. So uh, that's the type of training that our people are receiving. Uh, I was in Dallas, uh, you, you know, following the recent slayings of the officers there and had what I considered an extraordinary conversation with a couple of African-American officers. And um, it was extraordinary in that you rarely hear police uh, publicly criticize um, uh, the actions of other officers and this sort of thing. And, and here was an instance where, you know, several brother officers were being buried. And these officers were talking about, you know, though the suspect was in no way justified uh, for what he did. Um, and, you know, while they grieved uh, for their fallen colleagues and their families, et cetera, that they were saying that it was a moment that had to be seized to talk about the issues that the person, the suspect said, propelled him. And, and I, I thought that was just extraordinary. But in, in our conversation, they said, you know, we need to do this because every time one of these controversial shootings happens, you know, there's, there's hand wringing, there's blue ribbon panels, there's vows, you know, of, we're gonna change, we're gonna do better. And I said, you know, well, how are you gonna make it different this time? And, you know, they, they didn't have much of an answer. And so I will pose that question to this panel. How is this going to be different? Well, I can tell you one thing. I'm hoping that our uh, elected officials take this, the, the 81 recommendations that were made by this panel, which, by the way, are very specific. They're not, uh, you, you know, they, they're supported by the evidence of this report and that we get to the business of implementing this. San Francisco now has a, blue, has a blueprint 
to really make a difference. Now, is it going to cure all the problems? No, but this is a really good beginning. And I'm hoping, by the way, that this is something that also other uh, jurisdictions would take a look at it. The work that these three judges and the seven law firms and these five law schools put together, which were thousands of hours, is based on facts, is based on the real investigation, and the road to fixing some of the problems are there. Now, I'm going to tell you that certainly I'm going to work very hard to ensure that that happens in this community, and I'll definitely be walking around other places that want to hear about this issue because I think it's very important. I don't think we can walk away from it. Um, three things. One, uh, nationally, uh, we have Representative Barbara Lee's office here. Give Barbara Lee a, a, a hand. Her office is here. Her office is here. Um, um, I, I think there should, at the federal level, I think it should be non-controversial and bipartisan to say um, that if the federal government is going to be giving money to law enforcement agencies, be they local, state, or tribal, there should be a better screen on the front end in terms of hiring. Uh, that we shouldn't be hiring people who have, um, uh, uh, I'm, about, I'm about to get to you. No. <laughs> You're my third point. Um, but I, I do think it's important that we start raising the bar on the, if we hire better, we'll have to fire less. I think that the federal government should work harder and support police departments that are trying to do a better job on hiring and screening. I think that, that should be non-controversial. Uh, number two, it's going to take elected officials, especially people uh, like we have uh, in uh, Brother Gascon. This is an amazing, amazing man that is sitting here up on this stage to be a former police officer, to be a prosecutor, and who's trying to actually make sure that everybody's following the law, including the police. That's amazing, that's extraordinary, and that needs to become more common. It just needs to become more common. But the third, but the third thing is simply this. Community folks have a lot more power than we use. Uh, what Kamal did changed the whole dynamic. Kamal actually was more committed to this community having some healing and having some answers than him having a microphone. Now, that kind of leadership from community folks and from people who have big platforms is also going to be important. I think that we need a lot better from the federal government. We need a lot better from our local leaders. But frankly, we need a lot better from us. And I want to give the brother Kamau a round of applause for changing this whole thing. That's beautiful, bro. Beautiful. Please, Judge. So I have two takeaways. One is that the Police Officers Bill of Rights should be changed. And it, if it isn't done, by legislators who are going to need the courage to do, deal with the police unions, then it should be done by an initiative of the people. We need to get that law changed and made open. And second, I think, and I know this, we need more people of color and women in police uniforms. Right? So I hope we will encourage our young people, women, uh, by the way, studies have shown that when women are on police forces that they use less violence, they, they uh, engage in fewer shootings, and they are considerably um, 
they, they do not use excessive force at anywhere the level that their male counterparts do, that they are a calming influence in the police forces. So those are two takeaways. If we need the initiative by the people and get our young people more interested in becoming police officers. You know, as I reflect on your uh, story of the uh, Dallas officers as they bury their own, having uh, at least an appreciation for what was being said. Thank you for joining us for this week-to-week -week presentation of a recent Commonwealth Club program. I'm John Zipperer, host of Week to Week, and I invite you to find us online at commonwealthclub.org and follow us on Facebook and Twitter.